Welcome to Insight Faster, a podcast by MDPI. Open access is only really open if it's open to everyone. So we decided to sit down with some of our researchers to let them explain some of the fantastic work that they do. We'll talk about what it means to them, but also how it's going to affect all of us. Thanks for tuning in. Now, we've talked a lot about sustainability on Insight Faster with some incredible researchers but my guest on today's special episode has been working in the field since its beginning. Professor John Elkington, joint winner of the World Sustainability Award 2021, has helped bring the concept of sustainability from relative obscurity into the global spotlight. Professor Elkington is a force of nature. In fact, more accurately, I'd say he's a force for nature. When I sat down to plan this interview, I set out to convince the huge list of his achievements and contributions to global sustainability into a phrase that would adequately convey the impact he's had on the way we govern, do business and prepare for what comes next. Ultimately, I failed in the face of the breadth and gravity of it all. So I resorted to stealing some words from his own website and went with Ambassador from the Future. All of our futures are very lucky to have him in their corner. The triple bottom line from his 1994 book, Cannibals with Forks, is a concept that has been embraced by business leaders across the globe and helped shape legislation such as the UN's Sustainable Development Goals. More recently, he has worked with countless businesses to help them to better commit themselves to a sustainable future. Now, as co-founder and chief pollinator at Valance, With his new book, Green Swans, he is laying the foundations for a new age of regenerative capitalism. Thank you so much for joining me on Insight Faster, Professor Elkington. Uh, Jasper, it's a pleasure. And uh, although technically I'm a professor, I infinitely prefer to be called John, if that's okay. Of course, of course. And so in an interview in December 2008, you described the triple bottom line as a Trojan horse that almost snuck the concept of sustainability into the sphere of business. Now it's its front and centre. How have attitudes towards sustainability in business changed over the years? And how far have they still got to go? Well, I think it's, it's a fascinating time in the sense that sustainability as a term has now come smack bang into the mainstream. Everyone's using it. Everyone is sustainable by their own claims um, or commitments or whatever. And I think that's both an exciting time in the sense that that mainstreaming had to happen, but it's also a very challenging and potentially quite dangerous time because uh, what always happens when people pick up language and play with it in this sort of fashion is that they tend to dilute it. They tend to distort it and bend it towards their own particular needs. So I think we've got to be even more critical than we would be in normal times. But just finally, the biggest change in my working life has been that when in the 70s and 80s, 1970s and 1980s, the last century I started to engage uh, business, they really didn't want, companies really didn't want to talk to people at that time on safety, health and environment, then, then later on the sustainable development front. But nowadays, it's utterly taken for granted. I mean, people are fluent to some degree in different versions of the sustainability language. But the question is then, are they doing enough? Are they simply focusing on incremental change or are they, as I think we increasingly need to do, 
driving towards systemic change. And very few companies as yet are doing that last one. Well, it's good that there's been that sort of change, at least in the language that we're using. But your And your latest book, Green Swans, The Coming Boom in Regenerative Capitalism, mm. makes the case for these more transformative, positive market shifts, encouraged by the way us changing the way we think and act for the better. Can you see any of these green swans on the horizon? Well, they're not only on the horizon. I can see them there as well, but they're, they're already present in today's world. And partly what the book was trying to do is saying that at a time when many business leaders, many investors, many regulators and legislators are, are quite happy to uh, drive incremental shifts in consciousness and action and all the rest of it, there are, there are things that are going very much against us, but also in our favor. And so against us, I would say, now, whether you look at um, the climate emergency, the biodiversity emergency, plastics in the world, oceans, space debris, antibiotic resistance, uh, obesity and, and chronic disease, I mean, the list is just endless. And what links all of these different challenges is that they're all going exponential. I mean, they're, they're all starting to uh, press in very much more urgently. The problem has been... Uh, that we haven't really responded in like manner. And the idea of a green swan is not that it is a sim- single individual. And I could describe Greta Thunberg, for example, as, as a green swan brought down to the individual level, an 18-year-old uh, or whatever. But for me, and not, nor is it just an individual company claiming to be uh, a green swan. We've had that places like Philippines and uh, Indonesia and so on. But what we mean by it is a market shift. It's a shift in the way that markets perceive value and aim to protect and create it. So to your question, in today's world, uh, perhaps the most striking example of a green swan is the shift in interest in investment in and performance by this renewable energy sector, sort of solar, wind and batteries, uh, where you've had this ex- you know, extraordinary collapse in the price point per kilowatt or what hour of renewable energy produced. And if you're running, for example, now a coal-fired power station that is already built, it's an astonishing fact that renewable energy is actually cheaper. So if you go back 10, 15 years, people wouldn't have predicted that. Now it's now it's happening. And and because of the technology, that uh, declining price point will just continue uh, into the future. Now there, there are constraints, I mean battery technology and so on, but uh, that's an immensely exciting example of a green swan market shift. And you could put alongside that things like electric vehicles, very much linked to renewable energy. Uh, but you could also sort of start to think about the way in which artificial intelligence is starting to be used, not just to sort of consider health challenges, but environmental, ecological, planetary challenges as well. So uh, it's an incredibly exciting time. Uh, in all of this, but that doesn't mean that new technologies don't come with potential unintended consequences. Clearly, they do. And when you were speaking there about the um, the energy sector and the transformations that have happened there, when I was re- doing some bit of research for this interview, I was particularly interested in the work that Volan's doing with Nest, the Finnish energy company. Yeah. And as quite a well-established energy company, and who had, from what it seemed like previously, used a lot of fossil fuels when I did a bit of research on them, they seem now so centered on renewable energy. And I wondered where your work with them began and how you began to motivate this transformation for them. Well, thank you. But I mean, the the background on on, on Neste is that they used to be the state-owned oil company for Finland, 
so 100% uh, fossil fuel uh, based. We were first brought in a number of years ago by the um, the CEO, Peter Vanneker, who I'd worked with at Bayer in Germany and quite some time ago. And one of the things that we um, agreed is that I would chair an advisory council on, on sustainability and new markets uh, for them. And what Peter and, and his board have been doing is pushing Neste from what was, as I described, a sort of fossil fuel-based entity to a business which is much more invested in, as exact as you say, renewable energy. In fact, a great share of their profits now come from that side of the business and, and the circular economy, circular materials and so on. So one of the things that they're looking at now as, as the squeeze really comes on internet, internal combustion engines is what's going to replace the ICE technology? And, and, and the answer is, of course, longer term electric vehicles. But in the meantime, you've got vehicles uh, which are already in existence and they may be cars, they may be trucks, they may be aircraft, which need drop in more sustainable fuels. And so Nestle is very active in that uh, market um, as well. So I think the fact that they're Scandinavian is a considerable help. Scandinavian businesses tend to be much more in, inclined in this sort of direction. And if I look at Denmark, for example, what used to be Dong Energy, again, uh, 100% a fossil fuel-based company, has now gone 100% renewable energy and become uh, Ostel. And, and so the, you know, you're starting to see these examples of companies in transformation. Uh, there are still far too few, but there are a lot more than there once were, and that's exciting. Yeah, well, I think the, the necessity for this sort of change has been underscored by the events in the last few days, in this country at least. Yeah. And so I, I want to talk a bit about the Green Swans Observatory, because um, that's where I read that you're putting the prize money for the World Sustainability Award. Yeah. And I was particularly interested by the word observatory in this context, because I think I broadly understand the, the concept of the, but the word observatory for me was really interesting. What, what's its significance here? Well, the, the, the word observatory is used in many different contexts. I mean, most obviously in terms of astronomy and so on and stargazing. Um, but it's also used uh, by researchers to label organizations which are or initiatives which are assembling uh, information about a particular trend in society. So it could be sort of uh, around political dynamics, it could be around ecological dynamics or whatever. But it was also a, a, not a pun exactly, but it was just we're de dealing with green swans, we're dealing with these market shifts. Where would you go to watch some of those things as they happened? And if you think about uh, wildfowl reserves, you have hides, you have observatories that near where I live in London, uh, there is exactly one of those. So that's where the original idea came from. But it isn't simply meant to be passive and sit there watching through telescopes and binoculars or whatever. The idea is that we very actively reach out to people who are driving what increasingly is called the regenerative economy, trying to understand who they are, what they're trying to do, what's working, what isn't. And also critically, um, you kindly mentioned my, my job title, uh, you know, chief pollinator, to put these people together to sort of cross-pollinate what they're doing. And, and, and I think that sort of networking uh, effect of all of this is potentially really, really important. So the observatory has different functions. The, the, the award, the prize money, really, really timely and, and helpful. 
And one of the things that that will help us do is just engage more of these people. Part of what we're trying to do is, is to film some of the conversations that we're having, bang those up, pop those up onto our observatory website so that people can themselves get a sense of what's going on out there and, and why sustainability as it was originally defined is no longer enough and why regeneration, I think, is increasingly critical. I think um, at the moment it couldn't be more critical. I was particularly interested in the sector scans. Yes. And the sectors you chose are cities, electricity, food and money. And I wondered why these areas in particular were so important and what you expect to find when you are scanning them. <laughs> we, I mean, part of the answer is we don't totally know what we expect to find, which is what, part of what makes it uh, an interesting adventure in a way. But the, but the rationale, the logic was simple, which is that cities is where the human species now primarily lives. I mean, it passed the 50% point some years uh, ago and is headed towards 70%. Pandemics shift the, the balance a little, but we're basically headed towards becoming a, an urban species. So what happens in cities uh, basically has a huge impact on our climate footprint our waste footprint and all, all, all the rest of it. So uh, we're looking at regeneration of cities. And just by happenstance, I was originally, my postgraduate uh, degree was in city planning. So I've always been fascinated by cities. Then electricity is the power source of the future. I mean, whether it comes from nuclear, whether it still comes from remnant fossil fuels, renewable energy or whatever, electricity is what's going to power our economies. And, and that's going to drive a profound uh, set of transformations and sector after sector. Food is not just food. It's a cultural element in our societies, uh, most obviously, but equally it's soils, it's water, it's um, uh, supply chains around the world from, from farming and uh, through to the food distribution centers. It's around uh, nutrition, it's around health. As a nexus of activities, it's probably uh, one of the very biggest uh, influences on all of the challenges that we care to think about. And it's an area where you've got some very big players like PepsiCo, for example, or Walmart, declaring intentions to go regenerative, uh, either in some part of what they do, or across the board, as in the case with uh, the Walmart CEO, Doug McMillan's statement last year, that Walmart would become uh, a regenerative company. And then there's finance, because in many ways, without appropriate levels of uh, money, with the appropriate terms and conditions, the rest of it, this stuff isn't re really going to get off the ground. So, so finance is probably of them all, the most critical sector of all, bar one, which isn't directly referenced in the, the, the four sectors, but is, a, is what another section of the observatory website, which is education. And there are many people feel, who feel that we have 10 years to sort this out. Education is by the by. I mean, it's just a, it's not a waste of time, but it's, it's not going to sort things out in the timescale that we have. I actually think education is the single most uh, important investment that any uh, society uh, makes. And I don't think we're simply here talking about education of young people. I think this has to be education and re-education of every age cohort uh, in our society. So I, if I had to add a fifth one that sort of uh, stretches across, arcs across all of the other four, it would be education. And there we're focusing particularly on business schools and universities offering uh, business-related uh, education. Oh, I was um, speaking just the other day to one of the Emerging Sustainability Leader Award winners, um, Dr. Lena Melon, 
of the Pompeo Fabra University in Barcelona, and she was saying much the same thing, mm. that if we are going to make these positive changes, they need to come with an educative drive that involves all of us, as opposed to just the children of the future. No, she's absolutely right. And you spoke just now of one of some of the regenerators that you've spoken to with the Green Swans Observatory. Could you tell us a few more that you've spoken to and some of them that we should be looking out for in the future as leading the drive towards a sustainable planet? <laughs> well, what, what always happens when you get a new area uh, of the economy, and it might, might be around sustainability or the triple bottom line, or it might be around shared value, or it might be around the circular economy or whatever it is. There are fairly loose definitions, but equally there are people with very fierce uh, definitions of what, in this case, uh, would be regenerative or what would not be uh, regenerative. So in a sense, what we're trying to do is talk to people who almost self-declare themselves to be part of this move towards a regenerative economy, just to see how they're thinking and, and how they view the uh, the emergent competitive landscape. So the first two that I did, very, very disparate characters. Um, one was uh, Yvonne Schoenau, who's the founder of Patagonia. Patagonia, as you know, has been one of those brands and companies that has routinely been at the uh, forefront of green and sustainability and circular and, and, and so on. An incredible company. Uh, and I was you know, privileged right at the end of last year to talk to Yvonne about that journey, both for himself as an individual, uh, but for the company and, and its um, offerings uh, into the marketplace. And then at the same time, I talked to somebody called um, Azam Alwash, and he's basically the guy who has taken the Iraqi marshes, which were basically destroyed by Saddam Hussein, because they had become sort of a hiding place for uh, opponents of the regime and were just a little bit of a nuisance when it came to the uh, Iraq-Iran uh, war. And, but when I say that the marshes extend over an area the size of Wales, uh, th these are vast. And to destroy them took an immense malign uh, effort, which Saddam Hussein, as we now know, was pretty much capable of. And Azam Alwash has, has gone back into that blighted region and working with the uh, local communities who were much reduced. I mean, the, the, the population of the marshes collapsed during this sort of 20 plus year period. And what they've done is to break the dikes, as Saddam Hussein regime put in place. So the water's coming back in. And, and one of the problems is that a lot of toxics and pretty ghastly weapons were used there as well. And so one of the questions was, could you ever... Uh, regenerate the swampland. And one of the things that you know, I, I started my working career in Egypt, working on the Nile Delta, and particularly an area around the biggest delta lake, Lake Manzala, which when I went to talk to people in the, the Egyptian government, they would describe as you know a swamp, a ditch, you know, average meter, a depth of uh, one meter, but immensely important for offshore fisheries in the Mediterranean, immensely important staging post for wildlife an immensely important fisheries zone for sort of ordinary Egyptians, but very much then endangered. And you know, it, in the same way that the human species tends to destroy forests and trees, we've very much done the same uh, with wetlands. And yet, if you want to think about a stable climate, and if you want to think about biodiversity, then marshes and wetlands are absolutely crucial. So I, I looked at what um, Dr. Azam was doing, absolutely blown away by, by the scale of the positive impact 
there that he's had. Since then, we've talked to a range of different people working on ocean conservation, working on regenerative farming, working on biomimicry, uh, because in a way, uh, one of the interesting areas now is to not just harness nature, but to learn from the way that nature has dealt over billions of years with sort of the challenges that we're now facing. So biomimicry is a, is, is a wonderful emergent area of science. And then somebody who was uh, David Leventhal, who, who's been very actively involved in regenerative tourism. So it was skipping from one sector to another, you know, food, it might be transportation, it might be um, clothing, it might be um, whatever. But the, the, the idea is just to build a library is the wrong word, word, but a resource of some of the leaders in the space talking about the world as they see it, what they're learning as they do what they're doing. And over time, using that information base to build critical mass uh, around regeneration as a, as a business concept. Well, I think they're, they're very lucky to have you on board to bring them all together. <laughs> That's very kind. The theme for me, through all of the examples you just gave, seems to be that of regeneration as opposed to trying to fix something. It is that element of giving it a sense to begin again in a way that will allow it to continue. If you don't mind me asking something more personally. (laughs) Fire away. If you could go back to perhaps your earlier career and your earlier education, if you could give one piece of advice to a young John Elkington persuading his schoolmates to donate their pocket money to the World Wildlife Fund, what would you say to him? Well, that was, a, that was 1961, and that was a very, very different world in the sense that conservation and environment were just so alien uh, to most people. Uh, and so in a way, I was an alien in t- terms of adopting some of that stuff. And I, I chose... Um, after a period of working with governments and the Egyptian project was a case in point to switch to business. And I, through the 70s, I worked, I wrote for New Scientist and increasingly covered companies that were doing interesting work on environmental impact assessment and so on. And from that, then pulled into companies to help management, increasingly boards and C-suite folk to address these sorts of things. So in 1961 or you know, even in 1970, All of the stuff that we do now would have seemed outlandish. It wouldn't even seem sort of like science fiction. Uh, The closest I ever got to it was a book called Dune, which, as you all know, is uh, is coming out as a major film imminently uh, in October, I think. And um, I tracked down the author, Frank Herbert, and it took me about three years to do it. And it was really weird because I, I, I live in London. He lived in uh, the Olympic Peninsula in, in, in Washington State, Pacific Northwest. And I went quite often to um, Washington because I had family there, so Seattle and, and, and that sort of region. And for several years, we tried to sort of get into the same space because then there wasn't the internet and I, I wanted to do it face to face. Then finally, it, it happened where um, I had flown back from Washington State, came into London, and he was in London about to fly back to Washington uh, with his wife. So we managed to meet in a hotel. And um, we, we talked about his view of the human species and its, its capacity to rise to extraordinary challenges. And you know, that, that was a moment. And I, I was very privileged to have a, quite a number of these sorts of conversations with people, people like Buckminster Fuller and, and, and so on. And that 
began to open up a set of windows, a set of doors for me, which to possibilities that I just couldn't have dreamt of previously. So I've been incredibly fortunate in the sense that I've grown up with the environmental movement. I've grown up with the sustainability movement. And I've, you know, it's always very tempting to think because I was there, I was the sort of the cause of what then happened. And that's nonsense. It's like leaning against a wall as it's falling over and you know, thinking you pushed it over, you didn't. Uh, but I've been very, very, very privileged just to be able to ride a series of change waves, largely into the private sector, business, finance, and so on, and become a voice uh, for some of that, a champion or some of that. that. That's where that sort of ambassador from the future tagline came. But just, but, but just finally, in a way, on that, um, if I do one thing, it. I try and channel the interests of the future and sort of future generations is a glib term, but into today's decisions. And that's, who knows? I mean, who knows what uh, the future is going to want? But, but the, the game I play is to say, if people from 20, 30, 40, 50 years from now could become part of conversations today, which businesses, sectors, technologies would they invest in? Who would they want to work with? Who would they vote for? in the interests of that longer term uh, agenda. That's what steers me. But you know, if, if, if you told me that at, when I was 11 in 1961, I, I wouldn't have had a clue as to what you were talking about, really. Well, well, we know there could be a few people from the future who will look back on the work that's being done now and be thankful. And in that vein, before we go, I'd just like to ask if there's anything that our listeners should look out from yourself, from the lands and from the Green Swans Observatory or anything at all really in the future. So it can be publications, TV shows, films, conferences, anything like that for us to kind of keep our foot in the door on your work and that of your colleagues. Well, thank you. I mean, I, the simplest way for doing that is to just track what happens on volans.com, which is our, our website, or, or there is a newsletter which happens every month or two, and people can sign up to that. And the observatory site over time will have more clues as to some of the stuff that we're uh, currently doing, because we do work very close in with, uh, you mentioned Neste, but a range of other companies. Uh, and, and part of what we've been doing there is to sort of shift the nature of the discussion from responsibility, which is remains really, really important. But at a time when we've got resilience issues with all of our big systems, our economies, our societies and communities, um, you know, our supply chains, our, our biosphere and so on, uh, the only way to ensure longer term uh, resilience in those systems is to regenerate them. And so that, that regeneration message is absolutely central uh, to what we do. There's a guy we work very closely with, Paul Hawkin, who has just done a new book. And rather than directing people solely to our work, I would say Paul's new book, which is called Regeneration, published by uh, Penguin. Really, really wonderful introduction to this uh, agenda. And it's an immensely exciting one. With sustainability, you often felt we're moving backwards, struggling to sort of move forwards. With the regeneration movement, you can just see around the world, it's already happening. How do we sort of support that? How do we learn from the people who are doing that? And how do we build that into the mainstream? I'm sure there's plenty there for our listeners to get their teeth into. So I'd just like to say thank you so much for joining me, John, and congratulations on winning the World Sustainability Award 2021. Thank you, Jasper. I'm sure we've barely scratched the surface of both your work and that of Volans and the Green Swans Observatory. But the projects we have spoken about today demonstrate that corporate sustainability is possible and that it can triumph in ways that will be more innovative and more exciting than I could ever have imagined. 
We'll include links to some of what we've spoken about today in the podcast description, along with links to Voland's and Professor Elkington's websites. If you're interested in publishing with MDPI, you can find everything on how to do that at mdpi.com. You can also find everything to do with the World Sustainability Award and Emerging Sustainability Award winners if today's episode is giving you an appetite for incredible research. Be sure to follow us on social media to stay up to date with everything that's going on here. I'd also like to hear what you'd like featured on Insight Faster. So please feel free to send me an email at jasper.clo at mdpi.com with anything that piques your interest. Thanks again, John, and thank you for tuning in. I've been Jasper Clo, and this has been Insight Faster. <laughs>